Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, and welcome to this third episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. I recently caught up with Lantani and Ashley Peters when I was down in Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh, Land is the president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, a national conservation organization focused on public land issues. And Ashley is both a member out of the Minnesota chapter of that organization, uh, but most importantly, she is a new hunter and just started hunting a couple of years ago. So in today's podcast, we talk about public lands and threats to them. And this is important because I think a lot of people don't realize that public lands in the U.S. are truly the backbone of the North American model of wildlife conservation. And without getting into too much detail here, this model was formally articulated, to be honest, just in the last couple of decades, but it's built off the attitudes and work of many people in the hunting and fishing community going way back to the 19th century. There are seven tenets to it, and the seventh one is about the democracy of hunting, which is really based on inspiration from the work that Teddy Roosevelt did. And when he talked about open access to hunting, that it would result in many benefits to society. And that open access, as I view it, is really derived from your ability and my ability to go out on public lands and waters to hunt and fish. And this is something that's very unique in the world. And it's something we need to protect because there are very few places that have this opportunity for everyone. So I'll provide some links in the show notes page. So if you are interested in learning more about it, you can. Today, we also talk about hunters and anglers as conservationists more generally. You know, the hunting community has been focused on conservation of wild places and animals and plants and and really the entire wild environment for well over 100 years. And it resulted in the last century in establishment of self-imposed excise taxes on outdoor equipment that are focused on hunting and fishing. And those purchases that outdoors men and women have made have resulted in taxes that contributed billions of dollars to conservation in America. And again, we'll provide some links on the show notes page about that. We also talk about the rise of fake meat, which if you're not familiar with it, is something that's uh, very intriguing, but also I think very scary. That is growing meat in labs. And also what it means to start hunting as an adult, getting Ashley's perspective on that. She shares some new terminology for duck hunting and uh, also redefines uh, what conceal and carry really means. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation and look for the show notes at modcarn.com forward slash podcast three. That's podcast in the number three. Okay, we are uh, here in Bentonville, Arkansas. Never been down here before. With Lantani, the president and CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I'm here. He's here. That's right. Just gave the keynote address at the uh, summit we're attending. And Ashley Peters, an outdoor communicator, and for those of you who follow Modern Carnivore, is someone who we have been following the last couple of years on her journey to becoming a, a hunter and an angler. Yeah, I'm happy to be here today. Great. So, um, you know, one of the things we talk about 
on the Modern Carnivore Podcast and a lot of the content we do is is the importance of public lands. So for people who are coming to hunting and fishing for the first time as an adult, where do they go? Um, and Land, you were the keynote speaker here at the Outdoor Blogger Summit, which is this conference that is bringing national voices in the media, brands, big brands. We got Patagonia here. We got all these other other brands here. Um, and you gave the keynote on public lands. So. What's interesting, I think, is looking at that with the organizers, why they chose that for something where we've got all these different sports and, and activities coming together. And you, as the head of a, of a conservation organization focused on hunting and fishing and public lands, are giving the address. Why do you think this issue has gotten so big and it's relevant to, to really everyone that are that's concerned with the outdoors? I think... So I, there's a couple of things there. I think the uh, first one is is that there's threats out there to our public lands, and maybe like there never has been before. You know, ever since Roosevelt, you know, helped kind of start this public land legacy. You know, over a hundred years ago, um, there's been threats, but it seems now that they're even more dire. And and so I think that's that's creating an awakening, you know, within the public. And then, you know, I think, why did they ask me in particular? I think it's it's partly because of the work we're doing at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, but I also think it's this, like, opportunity to really uh, build synergy b- between, like, consumptive and non-consumptive uh, users. And I don't know if those are the two greatest words, but, they're the, you know, they're the, <laughs> the way to do it. Um, so, and, like, by non-consumptive, you mean, like, bikers, hikers, paddlers, and consumptive yeah, yeah. being hunters and anglers, right? right? Yeah, so pulling the trigger or, you know, uh, catching fish versus uh, just kind of uh, being an observer, I guess. And, and so I think that that is growing right now because of these threats. And I think that's partly why they wanted me to have me down here is just to try to help perpetuate this kind of union that is being created. And, you know, one of the things I said this morning too is that, you know, hunters, they mountain bike, they paddle, they mountain climb, you know? Um, and so it's like this bifurcation has happened more um, by outside entities, I think, than internal entities. Yeah. And, it's, and so like it's for us to break down those barriers and so that, you know, that we come out, uh, a lot stronger and so that we can have more of an impact when it comes to these threats around our public lands. Why do you think the the groups have been so bifurcated in the past? Do you think it's just the nature of focusing on what you love and if I'm a biker I'm just going to focus on biking and I don't know any guys who hunt or fish or, or what? So I think you know hunters and anglers have been doing conservation for over a hundred years in this country and um, and the biking kind of mountain climbers and skiers that's all kind of new you know and and not that people haven't been mountain biking and especially skiing uh, for a long time but it's fairly new and so i think that's part of it is it just the hunter's been doing it for a long time this new constituency is uh is just kind of starting that's part of it i think that there's outside entities too that that want to be like hunters are conservatives and then uh mountain climbers and paddlers are uh, liberals right they they really want to like keep it that way when that couldn't be further from the truth because you have liberal hunters and you have conservative uh, mountain bikers and so they've wanted to kind of keep us separate i think to divide us politically and again like you know what i just said is like why I'm here and what this thing is happening is that bringing those things together. So politically, we're a huge force, which I think is pretty cool. So why, why in your mind, are, are public lands so critical to specifically hunting and fishing? I mean, you know, I didn't, I grew up in Montana. Um, family didn't homestead. Uh, I have a, a lot of private landowners I, I know, and so I can go onto their place. 
but really public lands is where I do the, the majority of my hunting and fishing. And so it's a place that's like this great equalizer, you know, like I said this morning, like you, it, you don't have to be, you know, a rich banker from New York city to be, you know, to go out and hunt because we have these public lands. It's available to anybody. It's like this, you know, it's this great expanse that, that doesn't cost you anything. And so like, to me, it's like vitally important. It's this great equalizer to hunting and fishing. You know, again, like people can hunt and fish on private lands and they can pay for leases. You know, like the leasing thing to me is, is absolutely crazy because it's not even part of my, like my lexicon because I, I'm not going to go pay money to go hunt someplace. I'm going to go on public land and public water. And so um, to me, just public lands and waters, like without it, I don't think we have the hunting uh, and fishing heritage in this country and that, you know, big, huge outdoor economy that goes with it. Like all that goes away if our public lands aren't there. Yeah, absolutely. What do you say to to people who, um, let's say people in the hunting and fishing community who uh, maybe feel exasperated that hunting and fishing groups are the ones who've been carrying the water relative to public lands and conservation for for so long and other groups haven't and they get mad about it. Because I hear that. I I hear that, you know, at at different times. What what do you say to someone who, who has that perspective? So part of part of that is us taking credit for things that we don't necessarily do. Like, you know, I mean, I think there's like the Pittman Roberts and stuff. There's the duck stamp, which we contribute to. Um, but our public lands are paid for by every single, you know, the management of our public lands is paid for by every single American in this country, right? Like you pay taxes and that's what pays for the management, fire, road maintenance, all those things. I mean, Congress gets to decide on how much money they give. But so every single American pays for that. Um, on the other side of that, like, you know, I think we should be proud of what we do um, and, and what we contribute, you know, through excise taxes in particular. And but we shouldn't wear that as a chip on our shoulder. I think we should encourage like the other side. What I, again, I, I, that's the wrong way to say it. I think we should encourage more of that kind of altruistic behavior. Right. And so. You know, I think instead of being like, oh man, like we've done it all the time and you guys aren't doing anything, it should be like, hey, we've been doing this for a while and you guys should think about, you know, getting a tax on, on boots and backpacks and binoculars. Um, and those are things that hunters and anglers, you know, use. And so we'd be paying into that too, but make it more of like a positive, I think, than this like, this chip on the shoulder doesn't work for us. I think it's a, yeah. it's a conversation stopper completely rather than a starter. Agree. I completely agree. I love what you said this morning in your keynote about the idea of, um, Everyone should be buying a duck stamp, not yep. just not just the not just the bird hunters, you know. And yep. so, you, you got thoughts on that, Ashley? Um, well, I think that I think that a lot of people are unaware of all of the funding that goes into public lands, and until you start hunting, fishing, um, and doing some of these things where you have to buy licenses, you have to buy equipment you're not aware of it because you haven't had to interact with it. You haven't had to put money into it and think about it like, man, this is 75 bucks for this license. Well, I guess this is my donation to conservation, you know, and and you go forward with it. But I think that if you don't have to buy those licenses and you don't have to think about some of those things, um, it, it seems like it is completely free. And so the idea of then paying in some form is still an adjustment for some people. And so um, I think it's important for, I think this conversation is really important for folks who hike, bike, and paddle um, to think about as well, because we all need to be putting into that, um, that conservation 
funding and support. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And like you said a moment ago, Land, I, th- I think rather than for, for people who have been hunting and fishing for a long time, rather than having a chip on your shoulder of, hey, we've been paying for it, now you guys should too. I think it's a, a situation of, hey, this is this is what we've learned. And if other groups would love to do it, here's here's how we've had success and here's why we why we enjoy doing it. I mean, we're not, I mean, we're never going to be in a place where we have enough money, you know, (laughs) I mean, literally like whether that's, you know, like, like either buying, you know, private land and turn that, you know, into public land or to managing fish and wildlife. Like, I mean, I would love to think about a day when we have all the money we need, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. And so we need more people to contribute. And I think that's the positive kind of way to talk about it versus, man, we've been doing it now. It's your turn. You know, it's like, that's just, it's a negative connotation. Absolutely. So Ashley, you started hunting last year. It was mm-hmm. your it was your first season going out. Uh, I was with you on your first pheasant hunt when you yeah. when you got a pheasant. Uh, I believe this year you went out uh, waterfall hunting, correct? Yes. So you actually yeah. bought your first duck stamp, maybe? Or, or? yes, okay, yeah, I did. Okay, yep. so tell us about. It. I mean, how was it? Was it a was it a good experience? Uh, the duck hunting specifically. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> Something something valuable that I've learned in learning to hunt is that um, you not only have to be aware of what you're aiming at, you also have to be aware of what you can fall into. Um, <laughs> so, especially especially please, duck hunting. Please tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of puddles and cold water in various bird hunting pursuits. Uh, so um, I've, I've definitely, that's been an adjustment to constantly think about like, okay, so I'm focusing on this horizon. I'm like looking up, but I also have to know, um, you know, the blind that we used for, for duck hunting was just a canoe with, mm-hmm. um, with some, um, some decorations that looked like uh, the the wetlands that we were in. And so um, we were sitting there and the thought kept running through my mind, when I shoot this duck, am I going to tip over <laughs> behind me into the three feet of, of cold water, mm-hmm. you know, as I do that? And I mean, it's completely possible. So we didn't actually take any shots. Um, it was kind of a bad morning for duck hunting, but we went out in the afternoon we went grouse and woodcock hunting, um, and that was that was a really good experience. So, um, but again, the puddles. Um, I think I fell into a two or three foot puddle in the middle of a marsh woodcock hunting. <laughs> so it it's, won't be the last time, by the way. Like, yeah, you know, I've well, been duck hunting my whole life, and like I could say that, like, oh, I know how to not get wet. That, <laughs> You're gonna get wet and cold when you duck hunt. That's just like kind of like yeah. a, a given. Yes. So, um, I, but it's been fun. I mean always I'm with people who can laugh about it and like um, we're well prepared when we go out and so I feel very comfortable with the people that I'm with. Um, I've I've largely had women as mentors and that's been fantastic because um, there are all sorts of, I mean to be honest with you, like there are all sorts of jokes and things that you know that we make and, and talk about that I wouldn't necessarily uh, talk about if, if guys were around, you know, um, and, and some of that has to just do with a perception of being a woman who hunts. Um, it's just to some degree, a different experience in, in certain environments or certain cultures. So, um, it was great. Uh, duck hunting was, it was gorgeous. The sunrise was coming up. Everything was like pink and then it was blue. And then, um, we had some swans fly over. And, um, so, it was great birding as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think duck hunting is is definitely, it, it can be one of the most enjoyable 
hunts out there. Um, but it is, it can be daunting and, t- and challenging. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, anybody who starts starts hunting, I think the key is with, if you're going to go duck hunting, go out with somebody who's got experience. Because yeah. like you said, especially if you're water hunting like we do in Minnesota, um, it, it can be dangerous. You know, yeah. I was, oh, absolutely. when I was, this is probably 20 years ago, I was younger, I was, it was opening, opening duck season uh, up at the hunting shack with my family and friends. Everybody left. I was going to stay another day and hunt by myself. Started snowing. Wind was coming down from Canada. Perfect ducky weather. Okay, birds started flying. I'm like, I got to get down down the creek to the to the lake to to hunt. And I got down there, and it was just nasty weather. I shot a shot a mallard. Went over to pick it up in a canoe. Went to pick it up. Reached over. The thing was still alive and started flapping caught me off oh, guard no. i flipped out of the canoe it could have been oh. a really really bad situation Oops. i ended up losing my gun in the bottom of the bog went was a, somehow was able to get the canoe back upright paddle back up the creek to the honey shack get a fire stoked in, inside dry out and then that afternoon was able to go back down because i had marked the spot with a pole i stuck my rice pole upside down wow. in the bog and after two hours of, of punching down with a stick finally found the gun no. was able to lift oh, it out but yeah, I mean, it could have been bad. I mean, a lot. I mean, there's stories all the time of duck hunters dying. So I think that's something just to make sure that everybody who is who's starting to hunt knows is duck hunting's great. But make sure you go out with somebody who who knows what they're doing and they've got experience because it is it can be dangerous. Yeah, we went out two days back to back, and even the second day, I could already tell that I was more comfortable being yeah. in that environment um, because it it's so new and there's so much um, involved in it, so much equipment. You know, you've got the decoys, you've got the blind you've got all the stuff that you're wearing so yeah I I definitely agree it makes a big difference to go with someone that you feel really comfortable with and confident in and you got to make sure they've got the right decorations (laughs) I I picked that up I'm gonna start using decorations on my uh, uh, and all my talks we didn't we didn't camel that line up we put some decorations on it I, I will say though, I mean, I'll, like, like you know, we were talking about public lands and waters earlier. Like that ability to like go learn that Ashley's doing, or to have that experience where you almost died. Like as as crazy as that sounds, that's awesome that we have the opportunity, like, for that to happen, yeah, right? Like absolutely. you know, like that's like these are places that you learn, and uh, you have to, obviously have to be prepared. And then in that case, like you have to make some pretty smart decisions very quickly to survive that, right? Like yeah. if, if you went and tried to like get your gun at that point, you probably would have gotten hypothermic and died, right? Yeah. Like you yeah. have to go home and go. And so like, I think that's just rather there's those places out there that like we don't control everything, right? Like things like that duck, like that was unplanned for you. And then that happened. And then all of a sudden you got to start making decisions after that, which I think is absolutely awesome. You know, we were, uh, so this last spring when Hal, Hal came to Minnesota, Hal Herring, okay. the, the host of the, uh, podcast podcast and blast of backcountry hunters in english <laughs> and uh we drove up the shore because he'd never been to minnesota before we went up to gooseberry falls which is up on up on the north shore and one of the things he said that he loved seeing when we were down there we went down to the falls these are big falls very dangerous rock cliffs and there's a sign there it says swimming not recommended and he, and he made a comment on that. He's like, I love that. It's not that it's not allowed. It's just, well, you know, we don't recommend it, but hey, man, go at it if you want. Your actions do have uh, consequences, right? <laughs> exactly. So, Ashley, you've now gone after pheasant. You've gone after ducks. Um, what about 
what about big game animals? You know, that's sometimes, uh, it's something I'm always interested to ask people about who are, are just starting to hunt. Some people go right after, like, I want to go deer hunt. You know, the most popular big game animal in North America. Everybody goes after that. Um, other people don't have any interest. Um, so we, I think you and I have chatted about it a little bit before, but not a whole lot. So, I mean, what what is your perspective on that? Is that something you want to do or not? Well, I think at this point, I'm still getting used to the idea of hunting, to be honest. Um, you know, there, there are so many pieces that go into learning to hunt. So uh, the biggest one starting out for me was just owning, buying, owning, and transporting a gun. I mean, that was a huge adjustment for me, you know. And so I think, I think in the process of, of thinking about what are you going to hunt, when are you going, what do you want to get out of it? For me right now, I mean, I, I work an office job, so I'm sitting most of the week. So the most important thing for me with any pursuit outdoors is to be moving around. And that's, that's how I got into fly fishing. It was a great way to get a workout on a weekend and also have a bunch of fun catching fish. Um, and right now that's what hunting is for me. It's getting out in the field, moving around, hanging out with friends and maybe, you know, getting a meal out of the deal. So, um, Really, I think right now, time, money, and resources wise, I need to stick with with bird hunting for the moment. But I mean, I'm not ruling it out. It just um, you, when you're learning to hunt, you have to take things one one piece at a time and do what you're comfortable with. And right now, I'm still getting comfortable with just bird hunting. And so, there's I've I've completely thought about it, um, but it is something that I'm choosing to not think about it more, because for me there's still so many pieces <clears throat> that I need to work through with the hunting that I'm doing right now. So, um, you know, I I think that uh, like I said, the the biggest thing right now is that I'm getting outside, I'm moving, um, I'm interacting with the environment. So, that's where I am. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. It, it is. It's, you know, one of the things I talk about is a lot is for somebody who hasn't ever hunted before, land you grew up doing it, I grew up doing it, um, it's a daunting thing. Um, and, you know, to, to where do you start? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you get comfortable with it? Like you just said, I mean, you could duck hunt for the next 30 years and, and slowly get more comfortable with it. But you got you got to be careful, I think, not to bite off too much um, and, and really and really figure out what you what you like, what you want to do mm-hmm. with it. And so I think you're you know, everybody's going to have their own approach. But I like the perspective you've got. You got to share. You got to share with people your uh, your story. You just <laughs> talked about about the guy. You know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're referring to. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about decorations. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, when I first bought a gun, um, it came in a cardboard box, and so I had it in my apartment in practically downtown St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, so I take it out of the box and I put it together, and obviously it can't go back into the cardboard box once it's all put together. And I, at that point, like I'd gotten it together, so I didn't want to take it apart again. And then I realized we were going to go trap shooting. And so I realized I needed to get it out to my car, but I hadn't thought through enough to buy like a a transport, like case. (laughs) And so I was looking around thinking like, oh shoot, what do I have that looks like I'm not (coughs) hiding a gun under something like, because I think that looks scarier than just having like a gun case. 
So um, I grab a bridesmaid's dress out of my closet and I put the gun underneath the bridesmaid's dress and I carried it out to my car that way and I went to the nearest store. That is awesome. Isn't that good? <laughs> like literally, I wish I had like, like pictures of that. And that, I wonder if like this is the only time it's happened. Like I, I kind of want to think that it's happened more often, but like, like maybe not. Like, you know, like, no. it, bring, it brings a whole new meaning to conceal and carry. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> but I did go buy a case as soon as I could and... Um, I mean, it's just one of those things that like when when you've bought a gun, you're you're thinking through like what are their percep what are my neighbors gonna think? I'm in the middle of a city. Most people are not carrying. I, I mean, and a lot of times people are scared of guns right. in yeah, urban absolutely. areas. And so you you know, <laughs> the choice of address is funny, but it's also because like, I I don't want to feel like my neighbors feel threatened or that they don't understand um, owning a gun. And so I want to make sure to have a conversation with neighbors yeah. Um, about like, yeah, if you've seen me hunting, you've seen me in blaze orange, like this is what I do. This is, this is, you know, why I do it. So making sure that there's um, a positive perception of right. hunting as well. Um, and you know, we might get into this a little bit later, but one of the things that surprised me about learning to hunt is that um, I may not be super comfortable yet with the term hunter. Like, I still don't necessarily think of myself as a hunter. Anybody who's seen pictures of me hunting or heard that I went on a hunt has no hesitation referring to me as a hunter. Mm -hmm. So friends, family, people who have never hunted before, um, an article come up and they'll be like, hey, you're a hunter. What do you think about this? <laughs> you know? And so immediately yeah. you're pulled into that conversation in a way that if, um, if you haven't thought through a few things, it, it can be overwhelming because there are a lot of big questions. And if you're not comfortable being uncomfortable, then hunting's going to be a real stretch for you. But the nice thing is that I think you become a bigger person and you have to dig a little bit philosophically mm -hmm. um, when you start hunting. And regardless of where you land as, as a result of those questions, I think that it makes you um, a deeper conservationist. Like it makes you think deeper about issues related to hunting, fishing, um, being on public lands, all of that. So um, so it, it's been interesting because, um, I get referred to as a hunter now. Um, and, but I, I think it's opened up a lot of really great conversations. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Lan Tani and Ashley Peters. Just a quick break to remind you that show notes for this podcast and other stories and information are at modcarn.com. And specifically, I'll point out some upcoming events called the Modern Carnivore Experience. And these half-day retreats are going to be in Minnesota this year at the Baker Near Wilderness Settlement. This beautiful rustic lodge is in a wilderness setting and it's only 20 minutes from downtown Minneapolis. The agenda includes presentations and discussion with experienced outdoors men and women as well as those people who are just starting on their journey. You can try your hand on the archery range or with a fishing rod, taste wild game prepared by a chef, and I'll point out that Ashley Peters, who you're listening to on today's podcast, is actually going to be one of the presenters at this year's events. So go to modcarn.com forward slash events to get more information. Now, back to the podcast. You know, Land, 
I'll often, you know, I hear people say, and I, and I agree with this, which is you can't be a hunter if you're not a conservationist. I mean, when when, when that type of a topic comes up, I mean, what, what do you say on that? I mean, I, are they inextricably linked? Uh, and if so, why? It's a great question. I mean... <sighs> I mean, I think you can be a hunter and not a conservationist. You're like a killer, right? right. Like, and you're not like, I mean, you're buying your, um, your license, you know, as Ashley talked about, you know, the $70 license and automatically, you know, you're paying into some kind of management of those species. So in some way you're an automatic, uh, conservationist, but I, I will say there's a lot of hunters out there. That's where they stop. And so I don't consider necessarily them like conservationists in that true sense of the word. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, that's, that's a really tough question to answer. I mean, I think that the majority of hunters are conservationists. Yeah. And I would say that we're the original conservationists, you know, just because we've been, um, you know, working on protecting lands and species, you know, for a long time in this country. But like today, there are plenty of hunters that aren't, you know, like, like that just are disconnected. And I think like with Ashley becoming, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, an ambassador for, you know, cause she is a hunter, like that thing that she said, like that makes me think. And like, people are asking questions, like you need to like increase your knowledge as a hunter about conservation and about the history in this country and about what's going on right now. And so that you are informed in those conversations. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't say they're as connected as I want them to be right now, but there's opportunity there. And I think that's why we're having these kind of conversations. I mean, um, people that are listening to this are hopefully learning something today about, uh, all sorts of different things that we're talking about and then I can be able to kick that knowledge to other people like that's the way like these stories get told and so that to me is the true sense of a conservationist well and I, and I think just the nature of hunting itself you talked about this morning in, in your in your presentation about the the, the wildlife corridors mm-hmm. and about adaptability etc and I think the nature of this activity requires uh, huge expanses of land to remain intact yeah. for the quarry we go after to yeah. be healthy and sustainable right and and that i think is the beauty of it is is it's just built right into the the necessity of of the activity versus you know um not to dig on any of the other uh non-consumptives but like you could do a mountain bike trail on a small 20 acre parcel and and it could be the world-class best sure um but if you're going out elk hunting uh if you're going you know other big game that or or waterfall hunting that needs that's that's doing in the flyway that's going all across the, the the globe you need those big expanses of intact land and i think that's where it's 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 critical and 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 just and it's going to be more and more important in the in the future. Well, I think that like it's a natural path, right? And I think the way you just described it, like if you are really, if you're hunting casually, only doing it once or twice a year, you're probably not going to like worry that much about like you know the habitat that your species that you're pursuing in, or you're not learning that much about that species. But like as you just described, and like waterfowl hunting, like the flyways, like if you don't know about the flyways as a duck hunter, like that's a problem, right? Like you got to know like where they're reared and like kind of where they go winter and why all that stuff in, the, in between is really important. So I think like you do if you're really getting into hunting, you're learning more about that species, more of what 
you know, makes more of them or makes them survive or thrive. And so in a sense, like, um, like that's where like your conservation mind, I guess is starting. And then it's like what you do after that, right? Like actions speak louder than kind of like words. Right. And so if you're, if you're engaging like with your local rod and gun club or with, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers chapter showing up at a, you know, a management meeting, like that's where I feel like that true conservationist starts to come in because you're like actually actively engaged in trying to help these, uh, these fish and wildlife and, uh, and these, and these um, landscapes that can't speak for themselves. Somebody else has got to speak for them. You know, what's interesting is it's almost like a flip right now. What I'm seeing going on is actually rather than, you know, maybe in the past where somebody became a hunter or a fisherman, angler, or fisher, whatever term you want to use um, first, and then realize the importance of conservation with it. I'm seeing people who are focused on conservation and then see hunting and fishing as as an element within that, almost as totally. a sub element, which is a really interesting yeah. flip on on the traditional traditional way i think it i think it has been like the food aspect of that too right i mean i think people this idea you know of like farmers markets and farm shares and like well the natural piece of that is to then to think about where you're getting sourcing your meat right and i think that's driving a lot of that kind of like new hunters piece as well which i think is awesome like starting with food um versus like starting it as like just like something that your dad did i think it's a pretty cool thing yeah absolutely so ashley have you eaten any of your kill yet uh, well, I've only actually shot one pheasant, so okay. I've had shots on other birds, but I only got one. Um, and I made cilantro lime tacos out of it, which was really good. Um, but I have eaten a lot of wild game in the last year. Um, the great thing about hanging out with hunters is they always have fresh wild game that you can that you can uh, try new recipes with. And um, so, yeah, I've tried several different um, types of game and... Um, I really like it. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that I run into is a lot of people will say, oh, I don't like wild game, you know, and um, what I've discovered is it's actually true that it really depends on how you make it. So, um, you know, it you have to cook it differently. It's not the same as chicken. It's not the same as exactly. beef. And, and so um, knowing how to cook it is really a big step. But then, you know, you also get to feel a little bit better about this coming from a place where this animal had a great life and it lived in a beautiful place and it had clean water. It had all the land it needed to roam. And, you know, um, it to me is a much more sustainable way to be eating meat. And on top of that, um, you know that the money that you're spending on those license fees and on like the equipment and even on the gas in a small town in outstate Minnesota, all of that is going towards conservation. Like it's going towards supporting a conservation economy. Mm -hmm. And that piece of it, um, you know, to me really underpins why you, why you would pursue something like hunting and fishing. She just coined a new term. Did you hear that? No, I missed it. Conservation economy. I've never heard that. Like, you know, you're like the outdoor economy and stuff. I've never heard the concept. Okay. Well, it's the first time I've heard it. And like, I'm literally like, he's writing it down and I'm going to start like, (laughs) it's a great way to talk about that. I I heard it from somewhere else. So, all right. um, So we can't, we can't give her all the credit, but like, (laughs) I'm just going to ignore that. Like she said, she heard it from somebody else and I should get credit for that. Yeah. But it, I mean, it really does. It all goes to support the idea of conservationists going out and and being in the world and being part of their communities and 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 it being a very holistic experience you know so there is 
there's something going on right now that I'm following a lot, um, just for my personal interest with modern carnivore, and that is there's this very this new industry that's in its infancy, and it is it is uh, lab grown meat. I don't know if either of you guys have seen. I heard this. something on the news and I about it. So there's this company. It's actually a Minnesotan is the founder. I just found out recently, and I won't I won't I won't say the name, but they're 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 actually growing meat from stem cells in a lab okay and so i mentioned it the other day to somebody and they said wow sounds like um um oh my gosh what was that movie from the 70s i'm gonna think of it um with uh, charlton heston and basically anyways it's, it's got a similarity to that but my concern with that and what they're trying to address their 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 intentions are 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 well founded and it is basically saying the industrial food system we've got big cathodes uh, that have all kinds of implications, the amount of water, resource to transport, methane, et cetera, all these issues are, 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 are very horrible environmental uh, impacts. Um, and in this way, we're able to address those and, and uh, we make this meat in a lab. And, and so I see where they're going, but I'm very, very concerned about what this, what this implication could be if, let's say, we look in the future and we're all growing meat in our kitchens and in restaurants. Um, from the standpoint of the disconnection to nature and the natural world, and what's not to have somebody say, hey, well, A, you don't need to kill animals anymore. That was actually the statement that was made by one of the biggest founders here. It was actually Richard Branson that made it a couple weeks ago, who just invested $17 million in this company. So obviously he knows what he's doing, and he's betting big on this. Um, but it, it's, it, it's not only that, but it's, but, but it's then, why, uh, why do we need to protect these places and keep them intact? Yeah. For the, for the wild animals, we don't have that connection anymore. So I don't know, have you guys heard much about this? And what? I have, I guess I'm gonna detour a little bit um, and just say that I think some of this comes back to people getting stuck in cities, that they get stuck in kind of this little bubble of this is my world and that's about all that exists. And it's really important for us to get people out into wild places. Um, I helped with a program in Minnesota that gets people out camping you know a lot of families don't know how to camp and I know that's not like especially in a state like Minnesota where it just seems like this rite of passage where it's just this thing everybody does but they not everybody does it right and there are a lot of people who want to but they don't know how to they don't know what equipment they need they they're worried that they're going to put their kids in danger if they don't fully under like they're afraid they're going to get ran over by a moose Honest, <laughs> could happen. You know, could happen. so it's it is but, one of the more dangerous animals in the woods, <laughs> right? But just yeah. for some people who live in the city, um, especially, the only thing that they see about nature is that it's used in a scary movie when someone's about to get murdered. <laughs> and so to go outside, spend time in the outs, spend time outside, and and really be in it, like going through the woods off trail. I mean, that's something that is legitimately scary for a lot of people um and i think we have to back up and we have to remind ourselves that the very first step in becoming a conservationist is just to experience being outdoors and not being scared of it so um to get back to what you were saying about being so disconnected from the world around you that you um that you're not seeing that we could completely cut wildlife out of um out of our lives um, in some way, it 
to me, that goes back to the issue of just getting people out into nature, getting them outside, having them experience, have an authentic experience in the outdoors and falling in love with that. There have been some, there's some, uh, some media people here and I've met others over the last year that are totally focused on doing that and doing these big adventures. There's this couple I met, um, who took their, their like 18 month old and four year old kid on this like month long adventure into the back country in Minnesota, Northern Minnesota to make the point of, Hey, if we can do this, you can can. get your kids out on the weekend. Go to a park, you know, just getting outside. And I think you're right that, that we need to we need to make sure we don't lose that, you know. Dude, this idea of like stem cell meat is freaking me out. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, I, I thought it was just, I thought these were just like rumors and kind uh, of stuff. But no. like with Richard Branson like yeah. throwing down 17 yeah. million, it's scary to me, okay. and it's scary to me on like the disconnect. It's scary to me on like on the, what other things are going into that meat and like, you know, like how does that happen? You know, I mean, I think that's one thing we haven't talked about is a wild game. You are pretty much guaranteed that it hasn't been just, you know, stuck with a bunch of uh, testosterone and other weird, like finishing things that they do to beef. Um, and, and so it's like, it's, it's like the purest meat probably out there. Like this is freaking me out. Like, I mean, and it's, and I think, there is the piece like why kill animals anymore right Right. exactly okay we've got this thing now we don't have to have these big feedlots we don't have to like hunters man we you don't have to go kill anything anymore we've got this and so i think like there's many different levels why this is scary to me but it's like i'm sitting here like as soon as you mentioned it i've been like oh yeah i've heard about that and then it became more real it's freaking me out a little bit no believe me it's 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 a big concern of mine and it's you know it still costs i want to say like somewhere like five to ten thousand dollars a pound to manufacture it good yeah exactly but it'll get it'll it'll yeah. come to a market level at some point, whether it's one year or ten years from now. Yeah. And uh, given that they have the technology to do it, you know, they'll figure out how to how to bring it to a market level sure. where, where it'll work. And and I think it's got very scary implications. And um, and so it's something I'm I'm tracking and and, and keeping, keeping. So here's but, here's what I'm going. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I but it points to the fact that people really desire something that they feel like is responsible. Yeah. I don't think people are attracted to that because they're like I. I want something that was made in a lab. I think right. they they want, you know, you grow up with meat, you get used, you know, like, and it, it can be really hard to, for some people who, if they decide to be vegan or vegetarian, um, it's not because they, you know, they don't enjoy meat. It's because they feel that they want to be a responsible consumer and they want to be sure that the things that they're doing are, um, are something that feed into I don't know, a, a greater good or more holistic like or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the motivation behind it is what we need to focus on because I think that it's, it's a sense of like, I want to be a responsible consumer and not feed into, um, cause I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of meat comes from terrible practices. Absolutely. And so that's why this conversation is hard. And, and sometimes, you know, people are hesitant to have it, but I'm, I'm glad that we're, you know, we're all here and talking about it because it's important to remember that like there is a huge desire. And so hopefully that will drive more people to hunting and fishing, finding a way to get meat that um, maybe doesn't come from a lab. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and maybe like, and maybe part of this is that maybe the ax will be cleaned up a little bit on some of these practices that are happening right now, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like they see this thing come and see it as a threat. And so they right. try to improve their practices. What I was going to say is that, um, Ashley and I were out in DC together and, uh, and there was this turkey bacon 
like bacon doesn't come from turkeys but like it's like trying to like have like a healthier version of bacon right, or something right, right. it was disgusting i think i called like a meat wafer you or something did. Like that. i said what do you think of this and he goes ah, it's a meat wafer it's disgusting like i had like one bite couldn't eat anymore gag. it was bad and so like i'm wondering like i bring that story up because i'm wondering like as much of an idea this is, is like, can it really be that good? Right. You know, <laughs> right, like are people right. really going to want to eat this stuff or is it going to be like, Hey, you should do this because this is like new and like, you know, sustainable, blah, blah, blah. But like people are not going to eat it cause it's disgusting. Right, hopefully. Right, I mean, maybe right. that's part of it too. Yeah. I don't know. They're show they're showed pictures. I've seen little videos of them, people eating it and saying, wow, it tastes just like chicken. Well, they have to because it's like a $5,000 like breast of chicken, right? Like, like, you know, like whatever. You know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, um, what, uh, so land, what do you got planned for, uh, for a hunt? Are you gonna, are you gonna get out this fall? You're a busy man. You are traveling everywhere all the time. Hopefully you got time for a hunt. Yeah, I've got, uh, so I've got a young dog. Uh, she's, uh, 10 months old, uh, next week. And, uh, so my, like main, uh, joy this fall is going to be getting her on birds. She's already retrieved some ducks and some sharp tailed grouse, which is awesome. Excellent. Um, so we'll be getting out as much as I can there. Plus What's duck hunt. It's a black lab. Okay. Um, I've had nice. labs my entire life, and uh, little Tuli is her name, named after the Tuli Reed. Uh, but she's smart um, and uh, super birdie, and so um, you know, there's a lot of things that are frustrating, you know, with training a young dog. But there's also a lot of joys, and so I get a lot of uh, pleasure out of that. Um, I do have a, a elk uh, cow tag that I'll hunt. Uh, in mid-November and then I'm trying to like take some days off around uh, Thanksgiving to go chase a whitetail around when they're in the rut in Montana um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Okay. And, I, and I got the opportunity that I did I shot my first gator this year which was yeah. a crazy experience where, um, where I was down in Louisiana and I got a Cajun friend down there uh, Jared Serenier, um, who's seventh generation I think like Cajun like his family's got a place down there and and so he's, he's like, I was coming down for a meeting and we were thinking about going out and teal hunting and I've done that down there. He's like, well, what do you think about like a gator hunt? And I was like, awesome. And then I started freaking out as soon as I said it. Cause like, <laughs> it's like this prehistoric animal, you know, that I know nothing about. Like I know about grizzly bears in Montana. They don't freak me out as much as alligators do. And ended up like, like they had the whole hook in line, right? Like where they put it out the night before, like this rotten chicken, speaking of chicken, that might be the way we can use this, like, use like this modified, fake like <laughs> fake meat is like maybe... And, but the alligators probably wouldn't want to even eat it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they've swallowed this hook. It's in their belly. And so when you show up, like, you know there's an alligator there. You have no idea how big it is. And, like, they could be in six inches of water. You don't know they're there. And then he starts pulling it in. And then it's everything's going great until it gets, like, three feet from the boat. And then that thing sees the boat. And it starts thrashing around. And my buddy, like, he's probably, like, 160 pounds. That thing is working him. And he's, like, and I'm, like, it's this intense moment. And he's, like, the you know, the brain is what you're going to try to shoot to kill it. And it's only about as big as a golf ball. And like, you have to like, and so like this thing is thrashing around the tails hitting the boat, the heads hitting the boat. And he's like, shoot it, but don't shoot the boat. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> so I shoot that gator and, and luckily killed him on the first shot. But I literally shook for like 45 minutes afterwards. Cause it was such an intense moment. And I haven't shook like that since I like killed my first buck. Wow, wow. And so it was intense. And, um, I've eaten the gator before. I haven't eaten this gator yet. He's, uh, he's in the, uh, shop down there and I've made sure that my Cajun friends know that I want it because they yeah. eat everything and I can see them like uh, commandeering <laughs> it. Um, no offense, Jared. Um, but yeah, it's gonna, it's coming home. So I've already got, you know, something new, which is kind of cool. You know, like this idea that I can still try, you know, to do something that I've never done before is pretty cool. You know, and that's that's something that, that is key, I think. Uh, so I was just out in Wyoming a couple weeks ago, my first out west hunt. 
mm. doing a spot and stock when when antelope hunting. Yeah, and um, and that's again something that that I like talking about is is no matter how experienced you are with with hunting and fishing, you can always try something new, and that's what's exciting. Totally. totally. And uh, it was fun, man. It's yeah. just fun doing something different. It was hard, hard hunt, and I, I'll tell you. It was my first exposure to the patchwork of public-private land scenario, and we ran like the into checkerboard. Oh my gosh, the checkerboard! We ran into scenarios where here's this beautiful chunk of perfect antelope land. Like we can see these goats up on this hill. We can't get at them because it's landlocked, yeah. and and the only access point is through is through private land. So we can't get up there. It's a huge problem, and I think even crazier is like when you actually have a checkerboard, right? So you have like like think about like the black and red spaces on a checkerboard. And so you have, let's say the black is as public land. So they touch, like just a little teeny piece touches. But there's, they say that it's illegal to go from that public land to the other public land because your shoulders are violating airspace. And that is absolutely ridiculous to me. And there's like 4 million acres in the West that are inaccessible for that very reason. Corner crossing, right? Yep. Yep. So that was, wow. that was the thing. And there were, that was this scenario a lot too, where we were on land and we're right next to this other section. And you can't get to and it. And we can't get to it. What's interesting, so Matt, one of the guys who was on our trip. Yeah. He is a pilot. He flies uh, uh, 747s, okay? okay? He said he was he was listening to this. We were talking about this with locals. And he's like, that is absolutely untrue. He said, that is airspace. I can fly a plane at five inches off the ground if I wanted. That right. is public airspace. That's, the, that's what we're trying to talk about. And I think it hasn't, like, somebody's got to do it get cited for trespassing then we challenge that in the yeah. courts I think right. um, I mean you could do it we've talked about doing ballot initiatives and stuff but I think that's not necessarily the right way to do it but um, it should be it, sh- it should be just an easy kind of thing I think what's happening too is that now with GPS's you know exactly where you are and so before there was kind of like this ambiguity like am I trespassing or am I not now you know exactly where you are and so we can go from that corner to corner before it might have been a little ambiguous right. but now with this technology I mean, things need to change. Um, so, yeah, no, I, it's uh, it's an issue that, that people listening to this will hear about more, and hopefully we'll get that one solved. Yeah, yeah. Ashley, you going to do any more hunting this fall? Yeah, uh, planning on going pheasant hunting a couple more times, maybe grouse. Um, and then a friend of mine um, in Alaska just came to visit, so I need to return her a visit up to Alaska, so I'm thinking about a fly fishing trip up there oh next summer. Oh, my gosh. Awesome. So fingers crossed that works Bomb out. town. Yeah, yeah. that would be amazing. I went like 20 years ago, my brother and I did two-week tr- flying trip, and uh, just... just Oh, it's I can't wait to get back up there. It's it's been too long. Yep, Dude, I had the opportunity it. to go this year, and it was over my wife's birthday, <laughs> and I've been traveling a ton. And I had like we were going up to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, to go hunt caribou, and yeah. I didn't do it. And it's like this bucket list for me that like I haven't done yet. Like you were talking about earlier, there's still things you can do. Yeah. And I had the opportunity. It was gonna be like a paid for <laughs> trip and everything, and I like, didn't do it. So. Uh, it's on the, like for me, it's when I covet, you know, I want to do it bad. That's awesome. That's great. Well, well, I appreciate both of you taking time to sit down and chat with the, uh, the modern carnivore audience and, uh, have, have a great rest of the weekend. here. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you, you very much. Well, that's our podcast for today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lantani and Ashley Peters. Make sure you check out the show notes page with links on the topics we covered in this episode. You can find them at modcarn.com slash podcast three. That's forward slash podcast with the number three. In our next episode, I sit down with wild game cooking pros Jamie Carlson and Jack Hennessy to talk about all things cooking, 
and hunting and fishing. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.